0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more.
1: Hello, I'm James Glenday, coming to you from Canberra on Ngunnawal Country. Welcome to This Week. This week was a big moment for some of the poorest Australians who are hoping for somewhere to live. The Prime Minister's signature social housing policy finally passed through Parliament.
0: Every Australian deserves the sense of connection and community and dignity and stability that a home provides. This security gives you the opportunity to choose a career, to start a family or expand yours. To support your children's education, to plan for the future, knowing that you have a place to call home, that changes lives.
1: The $10 billion Housing Australia Future Fund aims to support the construction of some 30,000 social and affordable dwellings over the next five years. With rents rising and mortgages soaring, the cost of housing in general has become a really big political issue. And the Greens held up the passage of the fund for months, demanding, among other things, a rent freeze. They didn't get that. Instead, after a lot of back and forth, the party waved through the fund in exchange for more money for
2: social housing pressure has worked. $3 billion in the middle of a housing and rental crisis going on public and community housing will make a difference. It got us to the point where we're prepared to pass the legislation, having secured that extra $3 billion, and now
1: the fight turns to renters. It is the biggest boost to social housing
3: in years. Well, it's a significant shift in the right direction, and that is recognising that we need government funding to deliver housing for people with very high needs and very low incomes and that seems to have been a recognition that governments have forgotten over the decades. So we've got a shift in direction but the scale is nowhere near proportionate to the need.
1: Nicole Gurran is a professor of urban and regional planning at the University of Sydney.
3: The research evidence shows that we need around 450,000 social and affordable homes right now to meet our existing need. Another figure that might help us understand whether it's anywhere enough might be the social housing waiting list, which nationally is around 150,000 households.
1: And so how did we end up with such a shortfall in social housing? Is is it simply the fact that successive governments haven't prioritised this enough?
3: If we look back to the mid '80s, for instance, around 10 to you know in some years or 12 and a half percent of all new homes that were being produced in Australia were being supported in some way by the public sector. Now we discovered, um, you know, that word neoliberalism in the in the '90s and the 2000s, and this um, sort of belief that's been proven absolutely nowhere that the market itself, if governments could get out of the way, might be able to solve problems like housing. Now, in a funny way, actually, governments didn't get out of the housing market at all. We, in fact, shifted our support to the demand side. So incentivising, for instance, landlords to get into property investment through negative gearing and providing a very modest, actually, income subsidy to renters in the private sector, now called Commonwealth Rent Assistance. The bill for that is rising. Who are
1: we talking about here? Who will benefit from the Housing Future Fund? What sort of Australians are currently on those social housing waiting lists?
3: If we think about a continuum of housing need from people on very, very low incomes, so there might be on the pension, there might be... Uh, receiving unemployment benefits, their households with very low incomes. There will always need to be some form of government support to help them access, you know, appropriate, decent housing. They will be eligible for social housing. We move up the continuum just a little bit and we'll have low-income workers who now, you know, in comparison to even 30 years ago, low-income workers might be working full-time. They are no longer able to afford decent rental housing, almost anywhere in Australia and certainly nowhere within striking distance of their work. So when we talk about affordable rental housing, that's the cohort through to moderate income workers, you know, people with university degrees, people that we absolutely depend on our police, our nurses, our teachers.
1: Even though this bill was about social and affordable housing, the Greens tried to turn it into a a broader debate about the cost of housing, particularly the cost of rent in Australia. Will this fund have any noticeable effect on supply in the housing market and reducing the cost of housing for other Australians who wouldn't be eligible for this?
3: At this point, the scale of the fund is too small Mm. to have a a noticeable impact on the demand for affordable rents across the private rental sector.
1: So essentially, the federal government here is, is trying to provide for the most vulnerable, but other Australians are going to be at the mercy of the housing market. Do you think that we can rely on the market to solve the housing crisis on
3: its own? Look, the evidence over the past 30 years in Australia, but not only Australia, we're certainly not the only country that's facing you know, a crippling affordability crisis. And the evidence is that the market doesn't provide affordable and secure housing for people on low and increasingly moderate incomes. It's not enough. That's why governments have always stepped in to intervene to underwrite the funding that we need to provide decent housing and also to provide income support for people trying to access rental housing in the private sector.
1: The Greens used the passage of this fund to call on the Albanese government to work with the states for a freeze or a cap or a restriction in rents. Instead, the government's focus seems to be firmly on encouraging states to boost housing supply. What role do you think the federal government should be playing to help alleviate the housing crisis? Should it be looking at tax uh, incentives, for example?
3: Well, the tax incentives that we have at the moment are incentivising us in completely the wrong direction Mm -hmm. because if we look at negative gearing, for instance, but even the the generous tax concessions that Mm owner-occupiers enjoy they are all overwhelmingly pumping up the price of our existing housing stock and not actually generating the new housing supply that we need even in the broader market so yes looking at how we use our tax system to incentivize investment in new and affordable housing production would be you know a transformative step but More fundamentally, if we're going to start to address the backlog of housing need, we're going to have to increase the amount of funding that we invest in the social and affordable housing sector. And that is also absolutely critical to lift the housing supply that we need in Australia as well.
1: You study this area full time. Do you have hope that Australia can solve its housing crisis?
3: We certainly can solve the housing crisis. I mean, we're at a crossroads right now in Australia where we've got a national target to deliver. 1.2 million homes over the next five years, there's furious agreement that that's what we need to do. There's also, I think, quite a sophisticated understanding across the public sector and the private sector and the non-profit sector, the three sectors that we need to collaborate together to deliver the types of housing that we need in Australia, that that new housing output will only be delivered if we get much more nuanced in how we talk about achieving new supply. So if we look at how we can unlock access to government land, for instance, if we look at how we can use the planning system to support partnerships across publicly funded, community provided and privately financed housing developments that deliver, you know, mixed tenure, higher density but well-designed projects at scale, much closer to what we see, for instance, in the United Kingdom where over a quarter of new homes are being delivered in the social and affordable housing sector. And there is finally, I think, a real awareness politically that we can't allow this housing crisis to deteriorate any further.
1: And what do you think the consequences will be if Australia doesn't get this right, if housing continues to just get more and more expensive for some people?
3: Look, the consequences will ricochet across our economy. I mean, in terms of economic productivity, at the more granular level, you know, we know that employer groups are struggling now to find workers because they can't access decent housing anywhere within striking distance of where they work. We see lower levels of women's participation in the workforce. So we start to see a whole breakdown across many areas of society.
1: Nicole Gurren is a professor of urban and regional Planning at the University of Sydney. Well those lucky enough to already have a roof over their heads and own their own homes will have no doubt noticed the cost of insurance has been rising. Thanks to -to back-to-back natural disasters and big increases in building costs, there are fears growing numbers of Australians simply can't afford to keep paying their premiums, especially those in flood-prone areas. 7.30, shone a spotlight on the issue this week when it tracked down householders facing possible premium increases in the thousands and even tens of thousands of dollars.
2: It gives you a bit of a hit because, you know, when you're earning money, your your money's going up, but when you're semi-retired or retired, you're just covering costs and keeping level, but your your running costs are still going up, which is, it's really difficult.
1: I I will say it's cheaper to build my property. I will say that I have less contents than I really do. I will under-insure the property to keep insurance on the property. The average Australian who gets up in the morning, goes to work and comes home, is not going to be able to look at insurance premiums of 30 plus thousand dollars. Thankfully, most don't face such extreme rises, but research conducted for the Actuaries Institute has found a median increase of around 28% in premiums in just one year.
2: I haven't seen an increase like that in home insurance for 20 years. We'd expect maybe 3 4 5% year to year but not 28%. That's the first time I've seen that large amount for home insurance.
1: Sharanjit Padam worked on the research and says about 1.25 million households are struggling to pay for cover.
2: Yeah, so what we do is we look at how many weeks of the household income would it take to pay your insurance. Mm. And what we found is that 1.25 million households across Australia have insurance premiums that are more than one month of the household income. And we think that's unlikely to be affordable for those households.
1: We've heard a lot about the cost of living lately and the cost of building materials in particular. Is that the driving factor behind these increases in insurance costs?
2: It's half of the story. It costs a lot more to fix or build a house. And that flows through to higher insurance claims costs, which flows through to higher insurance premiums for the customer. But the other half of it, the other 14%, is very much driven by the sequence of natural disasters we had. So 2022 is one of the largest insurance losses Australia has ever seen Mm. from the multiple floods we saw across the country. And what that does is it drives up the reinsurance costs for insurers. So insurers buy their own insurance from reinsurers, and those reinsurers have made substantial losses five out of the last six years. And so they are pushing through higher prices to try and get to a more sustainable level for their business. And then that flows through higher costs for insurers, which flows through to higher premiums for the consumer here.
1: Right. So, some of the figures being quoted seem very high, but from what you're saying, it seems like the prices are probably roughly fair. Is there insurance price gouging going on, or is this just reflecting what's been happening in Australia?
2: Yeah, so we looked at um, APRA statistics, so the Regulator Statistics for Home Insurance in Australia, and when we look at those statistics, for the last three years, insurance, the insurance industry has been making a loss on home insurance. So there's no evidence from that that would suggest that insurers are overcharging. In fact, they're undercharging insurance Mm. is what's happened in the last three years.
1: What type of disaster costs the most to insure against? I'm assuming it's a flood.
2: It generally is the natural disasters, floods, bushfire as well. And of course, you know, cyclones and storms can have damage. Storms tend to be quite frequent, but less severe. One picture is in Northern Australia, where the the exposure to cyclones does put a lot of pressure on insurance premiums Mm. and and generally lower levels of income. So we see that up in North Queensland and parts of the Northern Territory and and Northern Western Australia. The other people who I think are struggling are those with exposures to flood. And these tend to be along inland rivers, uh, so inland New South Wales, inland Queensland, but also in other places like the Riverlands, South Australia. Mm -hmm. And also in Western Sydney, in sort of the Windsor area in the Hawkesbury-Nepean Valley, there's a significant exposure to flood in that area and we're seeing very high premiums.
1: We've been told a lot that climate change is going to make some of these extreme events you're talking about more common and potentially more severe. Are insurance companies already pricing in the risk for that, the risk that these events are going to be more common and more severe?
2: Yeah. So generally, no. So insurers are trying to price contracts for the next year. And so they're looking at the risk in a very short term. Mm. Climate change generally has a much larger effect over a longer period of time. So insurers aren't thinking about climate change in 10 years' time and then putting the prices up today. Competition in the market forces them to keep prices as relevant to the next 12 month period as they can. But I would say that climate change is already infecting insurance costs. At the Actuaries Institute, uh, we look at uh, uh, the Australian Actuaries Climate Index and we look at the frequency and severity of extreme weather. And that is showing a very, very clear signal that these types of severe weather events are getting more frequent and more severe in Australia. And the main challenge for insurers is to make sure that they're prices today have allowed enough for what has already happened with climate change, Mm. not what's going to happen in the future with climate change.
1: If the cost of insurance is so high, rebuilding is so expensive, does that then also reduce the pool of money that we might have now to prepare for these disasters in the future? Because we talk a lot about ensuring that towns and cities are resilient as climate change occurs.
2: Yes. We know that spending money on resilience measures, so making houses safer and more protected against these disasters, is very cost-effective. The figures vary, but, you know, numbers up to $8 for every dollar you spend on resilience, you can save in disaster costs. So it is generally, you know, the right strategy is to make our houses more resilient to future disasters. It is expensive, though. I don't want to underline that. So you still need to pay for builders to make a house more resilient so you don't avoid the building cost inflation. But it is better to spend the money on that. So this has been a big change that we've seen with the new federal government. Previously, the federal government would fund about $26 million a year for resilience measures, which compared to, say, $7 billion of loss last year was is a drop in the ocean. But we've seen the new federal government, one of the very first announcements they made, was to start funding resilience across the country. They've put in $200 million a year, and that's matched by states, and they have a five-year program for that. Mm. It's called a Disaster Ready Fund, and we're already seeing the first bout of funding coming out of that that is allowing the state governments to use that money to improve resilience at a household level.
1: So if you're listening to this and you live in a relatively safe suburb where disasters are unlikely, you're not going to get flooded, you're unlikely to face a a big bushfire, are you also paying more this year because of the increased risks in other places? Is everyone paying a little bit more because of the cost of recent disasters?
2: Generally, no. Insurers try to price individual houses for the risks that they face. It's called risk pricing and they don't try and subsidise across different households. And so people generally across the country will see that 14% due to buildings cost inflation. Everyone will will see that because it's a general effect. Mm -hmm. But the 14% due to increased disasters, insurers will try and allocate that cost to people who are actually at risk of those disasters. Finally, do you think that
1: insurance price rises are going to stabilise? Or is this something a lot of households and need to get used to over the next few years?
2: If we look, I think it's a different story for those two factors. So for building cost inflation, it is still relatively high, but it is coming down. We're starting to see the supply chains open up and less of a demand on building houses. That's reducing buildings cost inflation. So I'm hoping that that we can expect that to tail off. And that was a a one-off blip that we've seen for the last few years. On the other hand, climate change is here to stay. We expect that premiums will continue rising because we expect that natural disasters will continue increasing. And really, until we accelerate action to reduce emissions and to tackle climate change, that's how we're going to face the cost of climate change. The first place we will see climate change costs are in our insurance premiums. And we need to take action. As well as building resilience, we also need to stop... Emitting carbon dioxide.
1: Sharanjit Padam is an expert on climate risk at Finity. Now, it is a familiar refrain from mums and dads across the nation who will plead with their kids daily to eat up their greens. But how well are we all doing when it comes to tucking into our vegetables? Ask most people and they might tell you they're pretty good at eating the right stuff.
0: I certainly do eat my veggies. I like them very much. Yesterday I had a bowl of Brussels sprouts and bacon
2: with it.
3: We eat broccoli, carrots and try to add some green leafy vegetables to our vegetables, yeah.
2: Lettuce, tomato, cucumber, carrot, capsicum olives, pickles.
0: Definitely, we have veggies probably five days a week at home. But
1: are we kidding ourselves? This week, the nation's science agency, the CSIRO, delivered its verdict on that very question following a long-term study of our eating habits. The findings are, well, a little worrying. Our healthy eating performance was rated just 55 out of 100 and only one in five of us are consuming enough vegetables.
0: Yeah, so at the moment we estimate that two out of every three Australian adults are overweight or obese and it contributes about 8% of the country's total burden of disease. So poor diet increases your risk of weight gain and weight gain is a predictor of a number of chronic diseases including type 2 diabetes and heart disease.
1: Dr Gilly Hendry is the co-author of the CSIRO Health Diet School.
0: So it's a science-based questionnaire. It's online. It's freely available for people to complete. It assesses a person's diet against our Australian dietary guidelines. The dietary guidelines give recommendations by age group and sex. And so in this way, the diet score is able to provide people with an overall diet quality score out of 100. It captures questions about the variety in your diet, the frequency and the quantity of different foods that you consume across your diet, including things like breads and cereals, dairy, fruit and veg, protein foods, but also really importantly, those discretionary or junk foods, which are really the downfall of our diet quality.
1: So I've just done this survey. I got 65 out of 100, which doesn't seem that good, but I can see that it's about 10 points above the average. Are you surprised that the average Australian's only scoring 55 out of 100. That's barely a pass.
0: Yeah, 55 out of 100, yeah, barely a pass, as you say. I guess three main areas with which most of us aren't doing well, it's around those discretionary foods. So we're having two or three times more than what's recommended every day. So we're really falling short of the recommendations there. If we could move those off our plate, so to speak, we would make space for increasing our healthy foods. So in particular, vegetables, fruit and dairy foods are the three food groups that we find people aren't consuming enough and then healthy fats as well. And then the other area is around variety. So achieving greater vegetable consumption can come through trying to increase the variety of vegetables you have. And a really simple way to do that is trying to have three different types on your plate each night at dinner.
1: Having just done the survey, I can see that my expectations didn't quite meet reality about how well I'm eating. Do you think that a lot of people are sort of kidding themselves, perhaps? They think they're eating more healthily than they actually are?
0: Yeah, there's, there's really good evidence around that, actually. We, we totally inflate how healthy we are. We think we consume a lot more vegetables than we do. And we don't, whether it's consciously or not, we don't report all the Unhealthy or less healthy discretionary foods, even when we are reporting our consumption of certain food like for example discretionary foods, we underestimate it, for example, with takeaway foods, we might underestimate it threefold
1: wow, so my score's probably a lot worse
0: <laughs> it could be yeah we do you know in the background and a little bit technical, we do do some adjustments to try to account for that misreporting or that misperception of what people think they have. But yeah, I think this may be slightly higher than what reality is even.
1: You've gathered data on the industries uh, that different people work in. I had to put down my industry when I just did the questionnaire. So who's doing the worst?
0: Coming out down the bottom are construction workers, those working in finance or management. And what was quite interesting also was people working in beauty or fashion so, that's an industry that we might think is more health orientated. So, that was probably a surprising result. On the flip side, older Australians do well. So, people who are retired, people working in research, and then those working in the health and fitness industry, which is more of a relief than anything.
1: <laughs> yes. What would be the impact across Australia if we could lift the average diet score from, say, 55 out of 100 to closer to 80? Can you quantify what sort of difference that? might actually make?
0: Yeah, difficult to quantify the direct impact sort of of improvements in overall diet quality. We do know the group of Australians in this data set who were doing best. So they didn't have perfect diets, but they were doing best. They had an average score of 70. And in particular, they were eating more vegetables, fruits and dairy foods and having a much greater variety of those vegetables.
1: If there was one thing we could all be doing would it be as simple as eat more vegetables?
0: I think, yeah, two things. So one's a decrease message and one's an increase message. So the increase message is eat more veg, but a simple way to do that is not worry about amounts. Just think about three different types or three different colours tonight on your plate and try to do that for a few weeks if you can. And the other thing is those discretionary foods. So they taking up, I think they contribute, you know, 35 40% of our total energy in our diets amongst Australians. So if we can just have one less a day, we have between five and eight different types of discretionary foods every day. So if you want to keep your favourite, do that. But if you could just have one less discretionary food throughout the day, that would be the other simple thing that people could try to action straight away.
1: And that has a pretty big flow-on effect to our health, how we feel and maybe even our burden on the health system in the long run too, right?
0: Totally. And I think even that immediate thing, it's, it's difficult with diet and weight gain and weight loss because it's quite a slow thing. And then your health outcomes are even, there's a greater lag time between what you do now and the experience of poor health outcomes. But just reminding people when you eat well, you do feel better you've got a little bit more zest or vitality and that can flow on into the amount of exercise or how active you feel and how well you sleep and then that again in turn influences what you feel like eating the next day. So all of these little lifestyle behaviours, they are interconnected and really contribute to your quality of life every day but also in the longer term.
1: Dr Gilly Hendry is the co-author of the CSIRO Health Diet School. And That's the episode for this week. You can subscribe by searching for the This Week podcast. It's produced by Nick Grimm, Laura Corrigan, Marcus Hobbs and me, James Glenday. Catch you next time.